Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are going to talk about the courts. We're also going to talk about uh, political debates as well as we go along this hour. Uh, but the courts, on the occasion of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in Denver, um, taking a trip uh, to Utah State University, and they are actually hearing oral arguments uh, for cases uh, on the campus of Utah State University. Uh, so this gives us an occasion, and that's going on right now. Um, this gives us an occasion to uh, talk about the courts with a couple of professors at uh, Utah State University. So we have uh, Greg Gelshauser, who is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Political Science at Utah State University. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And uh, Damon Kahn, who is Associate Professor and uh, Interim Department Head yes. of Political Science. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I should point out we are on tape right now. We recorded this yesterday because you two gentlemen are at the event as we speak. Yes. Uh, so it's a little it's, it's time bending here, but then we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, so Damon Cat, I'll start with you. This this is a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Tenth Circuit Court uh, of Appeals is, uh, you know, in a lot of ways could be considered the second highest court in the land. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court only hears about 90 to 100 cases every year. And so one layer below that is where the vast majority of cases have their final hearing if they're federal cases. So uh, for the jurisdiction that's covered by the Tenth Circuit, Utah, Colorado, uh, and uh, a, a number of western states, uh, this is, uh, for the vast majority of cases, the body that makes the final decision on how the law will apply in this area. Uh, so, Professor Gelshauser, the uh, two sessions, one began at 8.30, and there's another one starting at uh, 10.30, I believe, um, and the students are able to, to, to get in. Um, uh, anybody else? Can, can somebody at this point or... Airing at 9 o'clock here, uh, can somebody get into the 10.30 session? As far as I know, tickets are sold out, but I do okay. believe they're doing a standby line for entry. Okay. And uh, this isn't a mock court, right? The, the, the court is actually taking actual cases or arguments on actual cases. That's right. 10th Circuit live in session, hearing oral argument in four different cases yeah. across the two sessions. Do we know what cases or the kinds of cases? We do know, yeah. There's, uh, and the CHAS website has some of the information about the cases, but there's a, there are a variety of issues. One is a tax case. One involves criminal sentencing. Uh, so there's uh, there's a range of issues, 10th Circuit, we hear. And there's one, uh, apparently, I'm, I'm reading here an, uh, an article from the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, uh, lawsuit against a therapy ranch for a troubled youth after a 17-year-old fell off a 70-foot-high rock during a hike. So one of the cases, case involving a UPS worker who filed a race discrimination lawsuit and was subsequently disciplined by a human resources employee. So th- these cases would have gone to the district level, and now they've been appealed. That's right. Would have started in federal district court, and now they're on appeal at the circuit court level. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is, I mean, courts equal conflict, right? The, this is resolving conflict. That's right, at the highest level. Uh, so it's it's a great thing for the people to be able to see in action. Uh, it's, it's rare for a court like the Tenth Circuit to visit a campus, much less a campus without a law school, so it's a really unique opportunity. Yeah. 
and that is a good point. Um, if they travel, they would usually go to where a law school is, I guess. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 relatively rare to go to a university campus at all. But uh, anytime I've heard about this, it's been at a law at, at a campus with a law school. Uh, how did USU get this? That's a good question. I don't know the the story. Okay. Do you know, Professor Ken? I understand that uh, some of our alumni in the law field um, were uh, uh, have uh, know some individuals who uh, work in the administrative end of uh, of this court, uh, and asked if they ever did it. If you and 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 then approached USU and said, "Hey, would you guys like to?" To host us, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we're, we were very fortunate to have the Utah Supreme Court on our campus last fall, and uh, I think that experience went well for for the Utah Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, so I think a rumor's getting out that this is a good place to hold court hearings. I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, now you're 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 wanting students to be involved. They they they're going to, I guess, have this experience and then. And then what? Tell you about it? Well, it's a, it's an interesting thing for for uh, anyone who has the opportunity to come and, per- and participate. An appellate court hearing can be very different from the conventional courtroom drama that folks are accustomed to seeing on television. And, and uh, I'll ask Greg to, to make sure I don't say anything wrong here because he has a little more expertise in, in this than I have. But uh, in, you know, we're used to, to seeing you know Perry Mason or, or Atticus Finch uh, talking about who did what and who was where on the night of the 24th and, and those kinds of questions. At the appellate level, most of the fact-finding work has already been done. The, the facts of the case are established and well-known to the extent that they will be. And so they're not trying to discover new facts relevant to the case, but the role of the Tenth Circuit Court is to determine whether the district court followed appropriate procedure and correctly applied precedents uh, in making their decisions. And so a lot of the discussion uh, that you'll see going on is very different than uh, what anyone who's attended this uh, event has uh, seen or experienced probably in the past in in, in what they've seen or or expected a courtroom to be like. So, Professor Gelshauser, if uh, someone were were at this event, what what would they see? These are lawyers making arguments in front of the court? Yeah, that's right. Each side's going to get some time to present their case, and much of that time will be the Tenth Circuit judges asking the attorneys questions and the attorneys doing their best to answer those questions. It'll be a dialogue between the judges and the attorneys, and like like Damon mentions, it'll be different than the typical uh, trial court uh, visual that people have when they think about courtrooms and attorneys making impassioned pleas to to juries and so forth. This will be a, a much more somber uh, affair and uh, a lot of discussion about precedent, a lot of discussion about technical areas of the law. Uh, the popular conception here, with the experience most people have had, is, uh, is hearing transcripts or um, you know audio of arguments uh, from the Supreme Court, right? That's right. And there's a lot of uh, until the judgment actually comes out, you know, at, at the end of the the term, there's a lot of reading of tea leaves. Same thing happen on an appellate uh, level here. How a, how a particular judge is is trending with their questions? Yeah, that's a good question. There's there's not a whole lot of that with respect to the the circuit courts, although it is very common for the Supreme Court. But 
no reason to think that uh, such an analysis couldn't be applied to the circuit courts. And so uh, one of the things people use to predict judges' votes uh, is, is the number of questions asked by a judge to an attorney. Typically, the more questions you get from a judge, the less likely uh, you are to get that judge's vote. So uh, if anyone wants to try to count votes in advance, they can certainly give that a try. Mm-hmm. And Professor Kahn, this this is where... This is where most of the work happens. Supreme Court takes some, what, 70 cases a year. Yeah, only a a fraction of the cases uh, that move on to the uh, Court of Appeals, these circuit courts, um, uh, ever move on to the Supreme Court. Many will apply uh, for for certiorari, uh, uh, the the ability to have their case heard by the Supreme Court, uh, but the Supreme Court denies certiorari, uh, denies a hearing. Uh, for virtually uh, nearly all of the cases that are are appealed to it. And so for those that aren't taken up by the Supreme Court, then the judgment of the, say, the 10th Circuit Court, uh, that sets precedent for that circuit, I guess. Yes, so this is the final word, and the the ruling uh, of the 10th Circuit will will be a uh, precedent-setting determination for this area. And actually, one of the things the Supreme Court looks for in determining whether to take up a case or not is if there's a square conflict between rulings in different circuits. Uh, so uh, if, if the Ninth Circuit decides a case one way, something comes up that's similar in the Tenth Circuit uh, in terms of the facts, the background, and the circumstances, but decides it in the opposite direction. That creates a conflict in law between the two areas, and there can be different precedents in different circuits. Oftentimes, that's something that can motivate the Supreme Court to take up a case. Mm. So, Professor Gelshauser, uh, what will you be looking for? What will interest you most as this proceeds? Uh, Having seen a lot of oral arguments, the thing I'm most interested in is seeing oral arguments in this sort of an environment. Usually, oral arguments are in relatively small courtrooms with relatively few visitors, and here we've got oral arguments being held in a concert hall with over 400 people. It's a very different atmosphere than the, than the typical one. It'll be interesting to uh, see how things play out in that sort of atmosphere. I understand that after the 1030 session, the, the judges will actually do Q&A. That's right. After, after all the oral arguments are completed, the judges are scheduled to take a few questions. Uh, so are these vetted ahead of time, or... Can anybody ask a, a, a question of the judges? As far as I know, the questions are not vetted ahead of time, and so uh, everyone will will have a chance to get a question in. Yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, so both of you study the courts, right? So Professor Gelshauser, how did you get into, what was your interest in in the making study of the courts an a important part of your um, of your academic career? Yeah, I initially became interested in the U.S. Supreme Court as an undergraduate, I think, because of the cloak of mystery that that surrounds it. It's difficult to learn much about the court. You don't get to see the inner workings. Um, and, and, and so it's a really uh, mysterious institution. I think that's true uh, more broadly of the federal courts, which is part of why this event is so fascinating, because it's an opportunity to, to see the courts in person, in action, when we typically uh, don't get to see this sort of thing. I mean, a- anyone can go into... Uh, the courtroom and watch oral arguments for any Tenth Circuit case, but again, they're usually not held in, in, in with you know over 400 people in in, in, a, in a city like Logan. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Professor Ken, are, are courts doing more of those, you quote-unquote, roadshows? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, courts are really unique institutions uh, in the American political system for uh, our elected officials in Congress, for a governor, uh, all the way down to local elected officials. The legitimacy of those individuals and their their uh, um, the, the rightful exercise of, of power in their respective offices comes from the fact that they are elected, uh, that the people chose to put them in that place for a given term, and then uh, we bring them back, we evaluate them again and see how, that, uh, how, how they're doing, and people get to make a decision about whether they continue. Courts are really different uh, from our other uh, institutions of governance in the United States in that at the federal level, they are appointed rather than elected, and they are intentionally isolated from political pressures, uh, the goal being to try to free them up to to make the best decisions they can without having to think about uh, without uh, having to think as much about politics. Uh, but uh, you see courts uh, doing this a little bit more these days. Uh, a number of states' supreme courts have, have gotten out and started doing uh, road shows as a, a, a colloquial term uh, uh, so that they can try to be out in front of people and build the legitimacy of their respective institutions. Uh, Iowa was a, a, a fairly early example of this. Uh, as several states were making rulings uh, pertaining to gay marriage, uh, Iowa had a, a decision. There was a, a cantankerous uh, a campaign uh, uh, surrounding the retention of some of the judges on the Iowa Supreme Court, and several of the members of the court said, "Look, this you know this is about legal issues, and if we could get out in front of people and help folks to see the way we're conducting our business, they felt like that that could help them to win some more." legitimacy, not through a formal election campaign, but simply by virtue of the fact that if people, they, they believe that if people watch them do what they do in their business, then it might change people's perceptions uh, about the court and help to protect the court's legitimacy. And uh, uh, as I mentioned, the Utah Supreme Court was here uh, on the USU campus a year ago, uh, and, and several other courts are trying to do these things, I think really to help uh, educate the public a little bit more to pull back the the shroud of of mystery that Greg uh, talked about uh, with the U.S. Supreme Court a little bit and help people to feel more comfortable with the work that their courts are doing. Mm. Uh, I'll direct this uh, to you first, Professor Galshauser, and then over to Professor Kane. Uh, Ken, um, the, maybe I'm naive, but it would I, I guess my perception was at a certain point. Um, uh, bolstering perception of legitimacy would not have been needed. Is this a new, is this is a new perceived need on the part of the courts? It's an interesting question. There is a sense among some that the federal courts are bulletproof. That is, they they don't need to do anything to shore up their legitimacy, and and haven't maybe at least for uh, at least for several decades now. Uh, and 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 that may be true, but it it still makes sense, I think, for the court to protect that store of legitimacy uh, and and also to, uh, as Damon said, help people get a clearer sense of what they're actually doing because so much of the popular in, impression of judging and 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 courts has to do with the trial level and um, and and I think not a lot of people know about. Uh, what takes place at the appellate level. So, Professor Ken, uh, you, uh, I'm going to pull this up here, 
you uh, co-edited a book, These Estimable Courts, Understanding uh, Public Perceptions of State Judicial Institutions' Legal uh, Policymaking. So this is state level, right? Yes. But it, but it could apply to to all courts, I suppose. It's, this is a very important ingredient, right? Public trust in the courts. Absolutely. Um, you know, all, all courts, whether at, at the state level or at the federal level, do rely uh, to some extent on, on building uh, a, what uh, one scholar referred to as a reservoir of goodwill uh, so that uh, as courts inevitably need to do from time to time, have to strike down a particular law or take an action that's, uh, that may not be the most popular uh, uh, or, or that, that may be fairly popular or, or take a course of action that is fairly unpopular they have to draw against this reservoir of goodwill from time to time. Uh, and uh, um, so uh, in that book, uh, Jeff Yates, uh, my uh, co-author, and I tried to explore a little bit about the determinants uh, of, um, of what makes some people see courts as, as legitimate and, and positive institutions in society. And our, our results were interesting. One thing, you know, to some extent, policy agreement really does matter. Uh, if, if courts make a lot of decisions that people disagree with, eventually it does. You, you can start to erode or, or drain that, that reservoir of goodwill. Uh, but there's a number of other factors that are really important, too, uh, and, and things like uh, level of education, uh, understanding of the legal system and legal profession, uh, level of knowledge about courts uh, are also things that help to socialize people to understand the role uh, that courts play in our society, and and with that uh, that greater understanding comes, uh, generally speaking, higher perceptions of legitimacy. You're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. We're talking about the courts today, on the occasion of the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, usually based in Denver, holding court on the campus of Utah State University. That's ongoing right now. Following the break, we're going to talk about the stressed, some would say broken, confirmation process for judges, uh, how judges are selected, and people's perceptions uh, of the courts. Uh, can you do that discussion? And uh, later in the hour, political debates. We'll ask, do debates matter to voters, and what do they reveal about the candidates? We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. An unusual and significant event is happening today at Utah State University. The Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the courts just below the U.S. Supreme Court and based in Denver, is in session at the Performance Hall on the USU campus. They are hearing oral arguments in two sessions, and then they'll take questions from the audience. Uh, that 10.30 session, I believe, is filled up, but uh, you could check out the performance hall on the OSU campus, uh, see if you could get in there. It's an unusual opportunity for you. Uh, we're marking this event by talking about the courts, a nomination confirmation process for judges, people's perceptions of the courts. Later in the hour, we'll also talk about debates as the Democratic presidential debates continue and in the aftermath of the announcement that Salt Lake City has been selected as the site of the vice presidential debate next year. My guests this hour include Greg Gelshauser, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the USU Political Science Department, and Damon Kahn, USU Associate Professor and Interim Political Science Department Head. Now, lately, uh, it's been building over over years. Uh, now it seems, I could put it this way, that a lot of stresses on the nomination process, the confirmation process. These have become high theater. The Kavanaugh hearings, for example, uh, talking about the you know the Supreme Court, 
Um, I'm guessing that 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 drives perception of of the of the institution itself. I don't know. You know, there's there's actually a couple of schools of thought on this. Um, there's um, uh, some some research suggests that more exposure to court, the more exposure to courts, the better. Uh, because when people are exposed to courts, they have exposure to legitimizing symbols. They see the robes, they see the stand uh, that the, the judge or, or judges are up on, uh, and and uh, that 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 exposure to courts in general just has some legitimacy boosting effects. Now, I, I haven't seen any specific research yet on, on the effect the Kavanaugh hearings in particular with, with their unique circumstances um, have, might have had on the legitimacy of the court. Uh, there's certainly theoretical reason to believe that, that some of that spectacle could detract. Uh, but it's interesting that, that uh, there's some research that suggests that that um, that lots of exposure to the courts even if it's not all universally favorable, can still have legitimacy-enhancing effects. What do you think, Professor Gilzelzer? You, you, you talked about the uh, Supreme Court being shrouded in mystery, right? and then in some cases they're trying to, uh, or, or some chief justices let try to pull that back. Um, more exposure, less exposure, being more or less uh, harmful or, or beneficial to perceptions of the courts. Yeah, I think there's a strong argument for more exposure. As you mentioned, confirmation hearings have grown more politicized over time. And one of the concerns among judges in particular is that people are increasingly seeing judges as just another group of political actors. And this is reinforced when all the typical person hears about appellate judging is... Uh, from the Supreme Court at the end of the term in June when they're deciding a lot of cases by slim margins, often 5-4, and they have all sorts of uh, political consequences, I think courts are thinking, well, it'd be good if, if, if people saw something else from us. Um, and so I think the more you can get people uh, into the inner workings and hear them grappling with precedent and hear them asking uh detailed questions and thinking about issues in a serious way, uh, and, and including with respect to issues that don't have obvious uh, partisan consequences, then that should be a good thing for judicial legitimacy overall. Mm. Um, I'll stick with you, Professor Gelshauser, on this first, on this one, but um, the the... I mean, the, the process, especially for a court, the process is very important, right? The, the perception of the process. Uh, in Congress, we kind of know what it is, right? It's it's open warfare. It's uh, and that's the way it's designed right. to be, right? You 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 try to prevail through through argument and whatever through political power. The courts are supposed to be more deliberative, more re uh, removed from politics. That's right. Um, and so the perception of even the very process is important. Yes, absolutely. And this is the one opportunity for people to see that process at the appellate level, which is why this is such an important event. After the oral arguments, the judges will go behind closed doors, and we won't see or hear anything else about the case until an opinion is released. Behind closed doors, there'll be lots of negotiation over opinion content, uh, but we won't see any of that. And so it's important for uh, the people to be able to get a glimpse into the process. And for appellate courts, this is it. This is the part we get to glimpse the oral argument. Mm. 
Uh, uh, your thoughts on this, uh, Naaman Ken, or the perception of the process itself? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think process is especially important, um, and, and um, perceptions of fairness that people get equal treatment under the law, I think, are a core underpinning of legitimacy, uh, such that even if someone loses their case, they may still perceive the court to be legitimate if they feel like appropriate and proper procedures were followed in the course of the uh, of, of the hearing. Mm. And, uh, boy, it would be interesting to be able to be in the room when, mm. when the judges were uh, debating which direction to go. Um, you know, one, one other uh, thought that I'll throw out there on this just quickly is, uh, to to remember that because this is a the, this court sets precedent for the the geographic region covered by the Tenth Circuit, um, the outcome of these specific cases will matter a great deal. You know who wins and who loses matters a great deal to the individual parties to the case, but they also matter a lot to all of the rest of us. Not necessarily in terms of who is declared the winner or the loser of the case, uh, but uh, as Greg mentioned. You know, when the judges are debating over exactly how to frame the uh, opinion of the court uh, when the, the case comes out, then that shapes what the precedent will be, and, and that will form law that governs individuals uh, who live under the jurisdiction of the Tenth Circuit into the future. Mm. At least on the Supreme Court level, uh, U.S. Supreme Court level, it uh, seems uh, over the past few years uh, some justices are maybe more open with their personal opinions, maybe more willing to go and do events where where they're not incredibly guarded. Uh, I don't know if that's a change that we're seeing and, and what effect might that have on people's perception of the court itself. Yeah, that's right. It does seem that U.S. Supreme Court justices are hitting the road more often. The U.S. Supreme Court does not hear arguments outside of D.C., so nothing like what the Tenth Circuit is doing, but the justices are increasingly... Uh, giving speeches at a variety of locations, and you're right, giving, uh, you know, giving some meaningful thoughts on important issues. They're still, uh, they're still not as not as open as a legislator or a governor as you might expect. But the, there definitely seems to be a change, and they seem to think there's some value in this sort of outreach. Although the types of outreach differ differs across courts. I wonder what you think about that. Uh, this seems to be a greater openness, uh, less guardedness in, in public speaking. Yes, uh, I think to some extent. I, I also think, though, that you'll find that um, that judges at the circuit court level or, say, at a state Supreme Court level may be actually a little more guarded in some ways. Um, you know, a kind of uh, code of ethics for judges suggests that they should refrain from uh, committing or appearing to commit uh, to how they would decide the facts of a of a particular case, and so when uh, you know we talked about the Q and A that these judges will do uh, at the end of this set of hearings, um, if, if someone asked a question and said, "So, how are you going to rule in this case?" I, I'm sure that the judge is going, uh, the, whichever judge fields that question will say, well, I'm not going to speak to the particulars of the case, but here are some of the processes that we'll, we'll be going through and, and what, what it'll look like. Uh, you know, judges have to be very, very careful uh, to maintain uh, an image of impartiality. Uh, some elements of the political climate now make it increasingly difficult for Supreme Court judges uh, to be able to do that. 
but I, I think that uh, that most judges want to try to make that effort. And, and more of their public outreach is about how to tell the story of what it's like to be a judge and how judges conduct their work and would probably rather try to stray away from the specifics of how to decide a particular case or why they decided a particular case in the way they did. I'd like to talk briefly about the balance of power among the branches of government. Um, increasingly, there's there's talk about, uh, depends on what side you are, uh, President versus Congress, you know, pro or, or against Trump, that the that the, you know, the imperial presidency has too much power. The Congress is abdicating. I come to think of it, that was discussion under Obama as well, and probably you know back under Bush, and it's gone back a while. Uh, in the meantime, what about the courts? Uh, where, where do you think that balance is? It's a good question. You don't typically hear a lot about the the court's relative power now to Congress and the president. Uh, gosh, I don't know. It's a tricky question. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's expanded or, or shrunk meaningfully within the last uh, several decades. Yeah, it seems to be a le- less concern over that in, in terms of what you what you hear in the course of public debate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the focus is really on expansion of executive power, a lot of discussion of that during the Obama administration, even during uh, the George W. Bush administration. Uh, you know, uh, gridlock in Congress has made achieving general policy objectives much more difficult and that's uh, it's not when, when someone's, uh, you know, sometimes we use courts as a, a, an avenue for policy change if we're trying to strike down an act of Congress as unconstitutional or something of that nature. But if you're trying to articulate a positive new policy agenda, it, it's not um, it's not clear that using courts is really the most effective way to move uh, uh, to to move that sort of. Uh, traditionally legislative agenda forward. But uh, with increased gridlock in Congress, uh, presidents have moved more and more toward using administrative strategies like executive orders, uh, signing statements, and the like. And uh, um, uh, that's that's really escalated over the last several presidencies. And uh, I, I think it's really going to take uh, Congress stepping up uh, to address that, uh, and and I suspect that to some extent uh, the courts would be willing to support uh, a Congress taking a more active role, but I think Congress has to move first. Mm. Uh, so, Professor Gelshauser, I wonder if you talked a, a bit about uh, your work on how judges are selected. This is at the state level that you've studied, right? That's right, yeah. So I've studied how the different ways states select judges matters for what types of judges we see on the bench. For example, how diverse a state bench is with respect to gender and race, uh, how qualified a bench is. Uh, and it's interesting. There, uh, So states have a variety of ways of, of, of choosing judges. Utah uses a merit selection system that has a judicial nominating commission sort through applications and forward a small list to the governor. Other states use elections, partisan or nonpartisan, or have gubernatorial appointment without a commission. So there's all sorts of ways uh, to do it, and it does make a difference, particularly with respect to the diversity of a state bench. Hmm. So which system works best and if, if you're looking for diversity? Appointment systems seem to work best uh, for diversity, hmm. yeah. Does it have any effect on on 
rulings or, or perceptions of, of rulings, more or less liberal or conservative, at least in the view of you know, people consuming, so to, so to speak, the, the, the decisions? Yeah, so there's not a lot of evidence that judicial selection systems, per se, impact decisions, but judicial retention systems, which are uh, which are which are similar, do impact uh, decisions. So the less independence judges have, oftentimes the more likely they are to vote in accordance with uh, with the people's preferences, which makes sense. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the courts on the occasion of the U.S. Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is based in Denver, uh, holding session. Uh, hearing oral arguments at the Performance Hall on the USU campus right now. They're hearing oral arguments in two sessions, and they'll take questions from the audience for sessions going right now. The next one starts at uh, 10.30. Um, And we're marking this event by talking about the courts. Uh, Following the break, we're going to talk about political debates. Um, The ongoing uh, Democratic presidential debates, of course, and uh, the announcement recently that the the Salt Lake City has been uh, selected as a site of the vice president's debate next year gives us uh, uh, an excuse, I guess, if an excuse is needed to talk about uh, debates. We'll ask, do debates matter to voters, and what do they reveal about the uh, candidates? More following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's an unusual and significant event happening right now at Utah State University. The U.S. Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the courts just below the U.S. Supreme Court and based in Denver, is in session at the Performance Hall on the USU campus. Unusual that the court uh, holds session outside of its home in uh, in Denver. So, significant event. They're hearing oral arguments in two sessions. The first one going on right now. The next one starts at 10:30. Then they'll take questions from the audience. We have been marking this event by talking about the courts, and uh, now we'll get into talking about debates. The Democratic presidential debates, of course, continue, and uh, there was an announcement recently that the um, vice presidential debate next year will be held in Salt Lake City. We're talking with Greg Gelshauser, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the USU Political Science Department, and Damon Kahn, USU Associate Professor and Interim Political Science Department Head. I want to move on to debates, and uh, Damon Ken, you've been involved in the Utah Debate Commission, and uh, big news we got recently, the vice presidential debate uh, next year will be in Utah. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about the the, the Tenth Circuit Court's visit to, to Utah State? No, if you're, uh, if you're hearing this and you can still make it out, give it a try. It'll be, it'll be quite an event. Okay. Uh, yeah, big, big event, and uh, never before happened. Yeah, we're Utah we're, State. Just, uh, we're we're really excited uh, about hosting this event here on our Logan campus, uh, and uh, uh, just really uh, thrilled to be able to provide this opportunity for our students and and for the broader Cache Valley community. Okay, let's uh, talk about uh, debates. Uh, so tell us in brief about the Utah Debate Commission which you have been involved with. Yes, yeah, so I, I uh, served for a period of time on the board and, and uh, had to rotate out of that assignment as some other roles on campus came my, my way about a year ago. Uh, so I don't rep- represent the Utah Debate Commission in this conversation, uh, but had some experience serving there. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, probably about six years ago uh, that uh, a colleague of mine, Richard Davis at BYU and I, 
uh, were on a flight back from a political science conference, and he said, you know, I've been thinking, you know, in Utah we have election after election go by without much substantive discourse on what's going on in policies. And he said, I've been talking to a few people, and I just think we need to get more people to engage in, in substantive political discourse during our campaigns. And I said, you know, I think you're right. Uh, and he said, I think we need to get a bunch of people together from across Utah universities and see if we can pull something together. Uh, so he reached into his academic network and I reached into mine. We sat down uh, and pulled together uh, people from six universities across Utah said, do you think we could do this? And we all looked at each other and said, well, I, I, I think we could. And he said, well, we need to get uh, some media support. And so we reached out uh, to, uh, and, and Utah Public Radio has carried uh, most of the debates, I think, yes, uh, uh, if not yeah. all of them, mm -hmm. uh, that the debate commission has put together, uh, as well as a number of, of media outlets around the state, uh, and brought in some, uh, some community partners as well, some individuals who'd previously served in elective office, uh, 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 former uh, state senator Scott Howell uh, was one of the co-chairs, and former governor Olean Walker was the first uh, Republican co-chair, and now uh, Thomas Wright uh, holds that ro uh, role, former state party chair for uh, for Republicans in Utah. And uh, we ran several cycles of debates. We've hosted a couple here on the USU campus and, and uh, hope to be able to do so uh, again in the 2020 election cycle. But after we'd done this a couple of times, we reached out to the uh, U.S. Commission on Presidential Debates. And that's the uh, entity that's organized the presidential debates uh, for a couple decades now uh, and, and, and formalized the rules and processes and how those take place. And they said, we love what you guys are doing. And by the way, if you'd ever like to host a national presidential debate, let us know. And uh, when we heard that in the commission, we all just about fell off our chairs. We assumed that Utah being uh, not traditionally a swing state in presidential elections uh, wouldn't really be considered. Uh, but we looked back at some of the history and we'd seen states like New York, uh, a, a, another non-swing state, hosting these and thought, well, why not uh, throw the hat into the ring? Uh, and uh, uh, it, since I've uh, rotated off, uh, the commission has uh, continued to pursue uh, those goals. And I think just a lot of credit goes to that commission for helping to put together and organize this, as well as credit to uh, the University of Utah for stepping up and being willing to do it. it there's a lot of costs that come into play in hosting the, the debate. Uh, reading through the, uh, uh, the, the requirements, uh, it's almost like the, uh, the stereotypical uh, no green M&M's uh, messages in the writer about what exactly has to be supplied and available. There's details on the number of phone lines, how many of them can be landlines, how many can be Internet-based phone lines, how many hotel rooms have to be available within, uh, within a 20-minute drive of the venue that's selected. It's a very rigorous uh, uh, process, and so I think it really speaks well uh, of, of the Utah community that we are on a level where we can host an event like this. Uh, do you think uh, this is vice presidential debate? And I, I, I saw quotes from the head of the Utah Debate Commission saying, hey, we don't consider this a consolation prize. Do you think Utah would get a presidential debate in the future? Uh, I think it's certainly something we could compete for uh, in the future. Uh, Hofstra University has hosted like four of these debates over the last uh, 20 years or so. And so, uh, um, you know, again, if, if you 
do it and, uh, and you, you do it well and, and the venue works out and, and uh, the community is supportive, I think the Commission on Presidential Debates has shown a willingness uh, to visit the same site more than once. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, but, but the vice presidential debate is really exciting. The, the history of vice presidential debates has some really interesting mm-hmm. uh, moments as you go back and explore some of these conversations. Uh, the the uh, uh, Dan Quayle versus Lloyd Benson debate uh, from, uh, from uh, I guess that would have been the 1988 presidential election, uh, was full of interesting moments in presidential history. Uh, there was high drama as we watched Sarah Palin and Joe Biden uh, face off against each other. And, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as rumors have swirled about the relationship between Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump, uh, it will be interesting to see how that vice presidential uh, debate goes down in the 2020 election cycle. Uh, I, I think notwithstanding the fact that it is a vice presidential debate, this is going to be must-see TV for anyone who's interested in presidential politics in mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask maybe either of you or both of you uh, about the Democratic debates. This is, this is, um, of course, in 2016 it was seemed like 100 Republicans were running for president. Now seems like it's 100 Democrats running for president, right? <laughs> I don't know, uh, Professor Ken. What do you what do you think of the the the, the rules that the, the Democratic Party set up? For, you have to have certain percentages of of uh, in polls, right, and a certain number of donors, I think. Do you think that's been effective? In, because you, you want it to not too speedily winnow the candidates, but, you'd, but you'd, you don't want to stay with, you know, 20 candidates on the stage. Yeah, you've, you've got to uh, figure out some basis because, uh, on, on which to, to winnow the field of candidates, at least to some extent. And that's a tough thing to say because, on the one hand, you want to give anyone who meets the terms and requirements to run for the office, the opportunity to be out there to articulate their policy positions and, and to speak for themselves uh, and, and, and present their message to voters. On the flip side, uh, we're already running debates that are two hours or longer. And uh, uh, and if you have 30 candidates up there, then it's hard for anyone to get their message out. And so uh, uh, it, it's become something of a norm to use some metrics of viability, initially using a fairly low threshold and then ratcheting up those thresholds over time as the debate gets closer and closer. So a broad range of people initially have a chance to participate uh, in those debates, but the thresholds for participation get higher and higher. So if your message doesn't catch on, if your campaign can't get some traction, you're going to have less access to these debates as a means of, of, of getting your message out. Republicans use uh, similar strategies. Um, uh, in in previous election cycles, and it's it, it's just uh, undoubtedly an imperfect way to strike that balance, but it's a balance that needs to be struck. You know, there there's some famous examples of uh, of debates, uh, often at the state level, where uh, I I think wanting to err on the side of uh, of inclusiveness, uh, which which is certainly a noble goal. Uh, we've seen some pretty wacky candidates get up on stage. I, I, I think of uh, Jimmy McMillan uh, in his gubernatorial race representing the rent is too damn high party. Uh, I remember, uh, I remember uh, him, yeah. In, uh, in a New York gubernatorial race uh, several years back. And, uh, um, you know, as, as much fun as it was to watch some of those clips back, um, you need to make sure that candidates um, – 
really are uh, broadcasting you know, messages that are, that have a way to resonate with the public, uh, or you're, you're going to have a hard time getting voters to tune in if they don't think of the candidates participating in the debates as being serious. That, that brings up an interesting point, because this is theater, right? I mean, in a perfect world, uh, maybe my perfect world, you'd <laughs> these you'd actually be debating policy, and that would be what mattered. But it seems there is that, but then there's the theatrical overlay and who did the best and who landed the best shots. Um, I'm I was reading an article in Politico the other day. Uh, so Tim Alberta, the reporter, watched the latest Democratic debate with um, a Democratic candidate who didn't make the stage, um, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. And uh, in passing, uh, the reporter Alberta says. Uh, Bennett's the kind of guy that probably would make a good president. He's he's wonky. He works across the aisle, et cetera, et cetera. But he's boring. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one reason why he didn't make the debate stage, although Bennett does make the point that he's within the margin of error of uh, Beto O'Rourke, who did make the sure. you know the, the stage. Uh, I guess maybe my question is, do the do debates? How much do they matter? in terms of how people vote? You know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the longstanding uh, questions that goes to the heart of whether democratic governance is truly possible is do, you know, campaigning and governing are different skill sets. And it's a fair question to ask, to what extent do the skills that make someone really good at campaigning end up actually making them good at governing? And I think that uh, events like debates are really important because being able to broadcast a policy message, try to build support for it, and reach out to voters in a way that can not just help them think good thoughts about your policies but also connect with you as a leader, I think I, I think those are skills that someone has to have to do well in a debate. And I think that skill set actually does a pretty good job of matching the skill set that's necessary for effective governance. Lots of other aspects of the campaign spectacle have very little to do with how well someone would actually govern, and that's led uh, at times to charges from both Democrats and Republicans against each other, saying that the other side is good at campaigning but not very good at governing. And uh, so one of the reasons that I really like uh, what debates can potentially do is that it comes a little bit closer at bringing the skill set for what it takes to be a good campaigner uh, to also be part, uh, to, to also emphasize what it takes to be a good leader uh, when the time com- comes for governing. Uh, and, you know, but certainly there's this gamesmanship element uh, to the debates uh, that people are trying to figure out to greater or lesser extents, uh, how to work that such that even if some of their policy chops are a little bit weaker uh, or if their ability to connect with individuals isn't as strong, they're trying to find ways to be able to work through those those processes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think the most unfortunate thing in a debate occurs when the debate becomes about people and personalities rather than about policies and ideas. Uh, and we saw some of that taking place. Uh, the, the debates were very personalized in the 2016 election cycle, and I hope that we can manage to avoid that in 2016 and, uh, or 2020 and make this uh, election about policies rather than personalities.
Well, we'll see how it all turns out. We've uh, reached the end of our conversation here. We've been talking with Damon Can, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and Interim Department Head. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And uh, Greg Gelshauser, uh, Gelshauser, sorry, uh, who is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies uh, in the Department of Political Science, USU. Thanks. Thank you. Both these, this this uh, conversation has been recorded. Both these gentlemen are at this big event, uh, which is the tenth. Uh, the Federal Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals is on the USU campus right now. First session ongoing. The next session starts at ten thirty. Uh, you could check in, and you might you might be able to to get in this uh, unusual event. Um, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate that. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have a couple of minutes here at the end uh, to tell you about uh, some exciting upcoming episodes of the program. Uh, tomorrow, in studio, my guest will be Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, who is a botanist and writer, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She uh, is director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She's active in efforts to bring the wisdom of traditional ecological knowledge together with tools of Western science for shared concerns for sustainability. She's author of Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, and Reclaiming the Honorable Harvest, Indigenous Knowledge for a Sustainable Future, which examines the ways in which traditional indigenous approaches to the environment and harvest, as practiced by the Potawatomi, can teach us valuable lessons about healing our own relationship to the living earth. So, Robin Wall Kimmer will be on the USU campus uh, tomorrow. Uh, there's a reading, free and open to the public, uh, which will be happening at 1.30 in the afternoon, room 101 of the Merrill Kazir Library. Prior to that, 9 a.m. here in studio, and uh, hope you'll tune in for that conversation. Then on Thursday, uh, my guest for the hour is Bob Inglis, who is a former Republican congressman who was primaried because he uh, came out in favor of... Uh, uh, believing in human-caused uh, climate change, and came out in favor of a carbon tax. This was in South Carolina. He lost in that primary nearly 3-1. to one. And uh, quoting from NBC News here, such a spectacular face plant, as he uh, now calls it, would have set many politicians scrambling for safe haven. He instead has gone all in. He runs his own nonprofit, Republican, Republican EN, devoted to getting conservatives to come to grips with climate change. He's my guest on Thursday. Hope you join us then. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today.